0: Rise and shine, History Buffs. It's time for another episode of Monday Morning General. Here we give you the play-by-play analysis of battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, hanging out with Bjorn. And today, in this episode, we delve into the Revolutionary War battles of Trenton and Princeton. These battles, fought in the winter of 1776 to 1777, were crucial turning points in the American struggle for independence. In this series, we will explore the strategic circumstances, key players, and the dramatic events that unfolded during the Battles of Trenton. Join us as we uncover the stories behind these pivotal moments in American history and gain a deeper understanding of their significance in the fight for independence. So, Bjorn, let's talk about it. We, the first time we're in the Revolutionary War, what's going on?
1: Yeah, I'm super excited to hit these two battles now. Many people would argue that these are really small battles. If you look at the total number of soldiers and we'll get into that later, but these are not big battles. Yeah. You know, it's nothing like what we've talked about previously. You know, the last one, the the fall of Constantinople, you had a hundred thousand Ottomans, right? Now you right. had a small number of individuals on the on the side of of the Byzantine Empire, but in this battle in particular, we're talking hundreds of. A couple thousand soldiers mm-hmm. involved in these battles, but they are absolutely pivotal to the to the American victory. If these battles had not happened when they happened, the way they happened, our history uh, as Americans could potentially be vastly different. So it be very, very British. Excited. Well, I don't know if we'd be British, but we might be something else, or maybe we'd be Americans now, but you know, like the Canadians. Maybe we'd yeah. have the queen and the, the new king on our money instead of president. Yeah. So I think really what we need to do to understand the battles of Trenton and Princeton, we have to look at the historical background that shaped the crucial events. There's several factors that are at play. We've got politics, military strategy, the economy at the time, society, lots of information, infrastructure involved in this particular battle. So, Brendan, let's let's start. Yeah. Let's start with the political situation. Yeah.
0: All right. So during this period, the political situation of both the continental side, so we're talking about the baby Americans and the British armies, was characterized by failed attempts at diplomacy and escalating military confrontations. Brothers and British officers, Admiral Richard Howe and General William Howe, Acting as peace commissioners were granted limited powers by Parliament to seek a peaceful resolution. However, King George III had little hope for a successful negotiation and emphasized the importance of continued military action. The limited powers granted to the Howells, which included the ability to grant pardons and engage in discussions with subjects of the Crown, which would have been the American colonists, proved ineffective in establishing meaningful dialogue with the Continental Army. The rejection of their letters by Washington's adjunct highlighted the deep mistrust and irreconcilable differences between the two sides. Meanwhile, Congress, American Congress, faced a difficult diplomatic challenge as they sought to balance rejecting negotiations while avoiding being perceived as aggressive.
1: Right. So here, Brendan, when we're talking to the politics of this situation, the American Revolution or the American fight for independence, these two brothers, the Howe brothers, they are are basically fighting a war with one hand tied behind their back mm-hmm. because they're looking at this as a situation that they they believe that they can rectify through negotiation. So they're going to be fighting throughout the entire first portion of this war up until 1776 with this idea of a limited warfare. They're mm-hmm. going to, you know, if we can just get Washington's army out of commission, but we don't you know we don't play too hard with some of the civilians we don't play too hard with any of the economics of the game if we're just if we're playing a limited battle like what they had seen in England and in Europe prior to the American Revolution they play the game that way potentially they can bring the Americans back but the biggest problem here is the Americans at this point in time, there is no way to bring them back. Remember, July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, they have already decided that they are done with this game being a part of the British. And so that's the big problem here. The Howe brothers, they're going to be playing in a different battlefield than what the American colonists are going to be playing in. And it's going mm. to prove incredibly detrimental to the British being able to actually stop this rebellion.
0: And I think we can kind of see that too, right? Like instead of sending real diplomats, the crown sends a general and an admiral to kind of lead these discussions. So I think there are, there is some understanding that this thing was going to come to blows and more dramatically than it already had. So General Howe, had strategically planned his next moves after capturing New York City. So his aim was to surround and weaken Washington's forces by capturing forts and forcing the retreat of the Americans. The capture of Continental General John Sullivan, who was released on parole to deliver a message to Congress, added complexity to the political situation. Howells were believed to have broader negotiation powers than they actually possessed, creating a diplomatic dilemma for Congress. In response, General Howe and his subordinates, such as Henry Clinton and Lord Cornwallis, pursued a strategy of consolidating British positions, capturing strategic locations, and relentlessly pursuing their retreating American forces. The British successes in New York and New Jersey bolstered loyalist activity and led to the recruitment of provincial militias. Meanwhile, the Continental Army, facing diminishing numbers and dwindling morale, grappled with the challenges of regrouping and defending their cause. So it kinda like sets us up. Like we have this political situation here. The Halls are trying to communicate with Congress that's in they're in Philadelphia at this time, right? And they're just they're not getting anywhere. Um, and you know Washington's turning them down, and so I think, Br, we should switch over now because there's this military situation that the the Hollis are in, right? So that we're talking about the campaign of New York and New Jersey at this time that's going on with this political diplomatic negotiations.
1: Exactly now. To go into this middle military situation, uh, what finds us on the banks of the Delaware River here in December of 1776 into January 1777, I want us to go back even much further than normal, okay? All right, so let's go back. Remember, spring of 1775, the battles of Lexington and Concord, the first open engagement between British and American colonists. Now, that sparks the rebellion and we're going to see American colonists flock to this militia idea. And they're going to, they're going to go to Boston. They kick the British all the way back to Boston. They start a siege of that city. We see uh, the battle of Fort Ticonderoga as well as wasn't really a battle dude knocked on the door and said, Hey, this is ours now. And then the British guy was like, well, okay. And they took all the cannons from there. They transported them over the winter. They got them to Boston and it, you know, great success in the very first portions of this war. The American colonists are seeing massive successes, one after another, after another. And then that's... In but there's, simple- th-
0: these are successes against British outposts, right? Like there's no British army in the colonies yet.
1: Well, there were British soldiers at yeah, the colonies, Soldiers,
0: but you know, garrisons. Yeah.
1: Right. There's, there's no massive army here yet, but there will soon be. But we're seeing these great these great strides forward. There's a high level of morale in the first year of the war from the spring of 1775 to the spring of 1776. The American colonists are looking at this as a great opportunity. That's why they take the shot at independence. You know, they're going to claim their independence. They're going to declare it in the summer of 1776 because things were going in the right direction, mm-hmm. right? You would not negotiate if you are winning, right? You're not going to look at this and say, "Hey, we're winning our independence. Let's go back to some form of British control." Right. That's why they're going to be doing what they're doing. They see some really good, su- some really good success initially, early on. But then we see the British send their actual professional armies, their large armies. They're going to send it over. We get we see the Howe brothers with their soldiers, and that's where we find George Washington, who's who's made commander-in-chief of the Continental Army he's in he's in New York City and we see the British find their way there and you see the you know we've we've already had the the battles of Bunker Hill happening you remember don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes we're seeing how the British professionals can play at this game and the Americans are nowhere near that good they're not trained mm-hmm. but remember armies are expensive so the entire time when you're thinking about this Brendan Think about these professional armies. They take a really long time to train. The entire British Empire has only a couple, you know, tens of thousands of soldiers across the entirety of the British Empire. And so having the British devote tens of thousands of soldiers to the American colonies is going to be a large expenditure in resources, but also it's allocating a lot of soldiers and manpower that potentially need to be in other areas of their realm. So they have an intrinsic motivation to end this thing as quickly as Mm -hmm. possible. And they also cannot afford to waste their soldiers. They learned at the Battle of Bunker Hill that they cannot push up a hill and just continually take these beatings, even though they're going to win the battle. They may lose the war through a vastly more expensive uh, casualty count as what they saw at the Battle of Bunker Hill. So you get to New York. We see Washington's at New York and he makes some really, really stupid decisions. Mm. We're seeing his men getting outflanked, flanked, uh, especially at the Battle of Long Island. That's going to be in August of 1770. Thousands of British go to Long Island. We get 9,000 Hessians. Now, remember, I told you armies are expensive. Hessians are from Germany. And these Hessian soldiers, because they're so expensive, they basically get rented out as mercenaries to the British army because this prince in Germany, uh, he's he's tired of paying for his soldiers. They're really expensive. So, hey, I'm going to go and get him some free experience and have the British Empire pay me. For those soldiers who are going to be gaining experience in the end. Right. So Washington finds himself in a real crisis scenario. He successfully at night removes his soldiers from that situation and he's going to uh, kind of find himself in a tricky spot. All right. So he's concerned about being trapped. He's strategically placed troops in New York City. He has a really, in his mind, he really likes New York City. He wants to hold it. And he's going to move his men to the rest, uh, the rest of the men to Harlem Heights in the first recorded use of a submarine in warfare. He's going to uh, send this little thing, this little, it looked like a barrel, <laughs> right? It's called the Turtle. They launch it in a failed attempt at uh, at sinking HMS Eagle, which was Admiral Howe's flagship. Now, You're remember- You're saying that didn't work? Oh, it did not work. Dang that. it! It was a failed attempt. Yeah. The first, turtle is
0: such a cute name for it too.
1: It and it's an adorable little thing. If you look <laughs> at it, picture a really large barrel. Yeah. And a corkscrew as a as a way of oh man, kind of you have to you have to turn the corkscrew. Yeah, I to can't imagine being those dudes in there. Uh, it was only one dude. One,
0: one dude. dude oh corkscrew. man.
1: Yeah. So Washington's gonna lose New York City. He's going to find himself in trouble, but he is going to learn very quickly. This is one thing that I really like about General George Washington. He doesn't have a whole lot of military experience initially early on in this war, but he learns very quickly Mm -hmm. and he is willing to learn from his mistakes. Unlike the British generals who continually time after time make the same or similar mistakes, he's going to learn. He's not going to make the same mistake. And he has one entire goal. His goal is he knows that as long as his army is surviving, as long as his army is in the field, the rebellion continues. The yeah. American- so Washington
0: doesn't want to just throw his guys at problems, right? He will retreat when it makes sense to maintain the life of his army.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If, and you during- know, if he gets
0: into a decisive pitch battle, that's the whole strategy. Like they would, they, like the there would be no America if and, they get to a pitch battle right. that they lose.
1: The curtain falls on the story that was the yeah. very short-lived story of America, if he gets smashed. Yep. Now, Washington's going to do a really good job during this portion of the campaign at staying just close enough to the British to entice them to continue pushing after him, but not not too close that he's going to get himself stuck in a pitched battle like what you said. right? General Howe seizes control of New York City. Washington withdraws, eventually pushes all the way out of New York um, Fort Washington, Fort Lee are captured all throughout that area. British Consolid- and Washington and Fort Lee.
0: Are they in New York? Or are they in New Jersey? I think you're in Jersey, right? Yeah, they're in Jersey. Yeah.
1: He's going to retreat all the way through New York, all the way through New Jersey. You're going to go across the Delaware river into Pennsylvania. And it's at that point in time where he says, Hey, uh, continental Congress, you might need to leave. All right. Cause he's, because- he's
0: like miles away from Philly, right? Like he is oh, yeah, really he's- close to the Capitol.
1: He is right there and he's concerned that he cannot hold the British. And imagine uh, one thing: General George Washington's army is destroyed. The rebellion's over. Right. The Continental Congress is captured. The actual portion that is America is gone. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: the the both thing, have to stay alive.
1: Yeah, the thing that George Washington is fighting for, because remember. He answers to Congress, and that's one thing that's really impressive about him is he is ensuring through daily messages to the Continental Congress, he is ensuring that they recognize that he is subordinate to them. Mm -hmm. A lot of generals during rebellions tend to go off on their own, and they end up taking power. Now, George Washington is going to do the opposite. He's going to continually keep them in the information. They're going to know exactly what he's doing. They're a part of this And he subjugates himself to the Continental Congress. This is
0: an interesting point, too, Bjorn, because this like talking back to the political thing, this sets the stage for how the United States Department of Defense is set up in, you know, in regards to us being commanded by the commander in chief. But the president, you know, has to get authorization for war from Congress. And, you know, we have to do continual reports yearly to uh, the Senate and House Armed Services Committee. And so it's a constant communication back to Congress who control the purse strings of the military. So it like sets precedent here today.
1: It absolutely does. So now we find ourselves in December, November, December of 1776. It started what started out as a banner year for the um, Americans, for the Continentals has really turned sour. They've lost New York. They've lost New Jersey. They're just barely in uh, in Pennsylvania. It's been defeat after defeat. And we see the British doing what they normally do with their limited form of warfare, they're going to start establishing outposts mm-hmm. where they're just going to, you know, here's a thousand men hanging out in this city, and they're going to wo- overwinter in these outposts. So they put outposts throughout New Jersey, they control New York, and they're going to set their sights on Philadelphia, but they're also ensuring that, you know, in the style of limited warfare, they're, they're betting down for the winter, you know. Right. Professional European armies in the 1700s, they were too gentlemanly to fight in the wintertime. It's it's (laughs) uncommon
0: and unseemly.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So um, and you could just see like General Howe's eyes start to light up as he sees Philadelphia in his grasp. And so he, he sends a letter back to Lord Germain, outlining his ambition, ambitious plan for the next year involving multiple expeditions and the defense of his key locations. And with the rebel capital and striking distance and the potential for foreign alliances, the British strategy was poised for a significant impact in the course of the war coming in the spring of 1777.
1: Yeah, so for those listening who don't know who Lord Germain is, he actually was like the right-hand man to the king during this battle. He was like the guy who was in charge. over, Like, an, in like a minister of
0: defense or like a secretary of war or something? Yeah. yeah. What
1: was He was the guy who was orchestrating what was happening in the American colony, but he was in Great Britain at the
0: time. Okay, so that was the British side. On the U.S. side, you know, we talked about it. The Continental Army is facing a ton of challenges and setbacks in late 1776, But they have a small glimmer of hope here. So Washington establishes his camp near McConkey's Ferry, strategically positioning his forces close to the crossing site along the Delaware River. Upon their arrival at McConkey's Ferry, Washington's army numbered four to 6,000 men. Um, Unfortunately, 1,700 of them were unfit for duty and required medical care. The retreat across New Jersey had resulted in the loss of vital supplies and severed contact with two important divisions of the army, General Horatio Gates and General Charles Lee were expected to join Washington, but they encountered their own obstacles. Gates faced delays caused by heavy snow, while Lee harboring a low opinion of Washington repeatedly ignored orders to march and instead remained near Morristown, New Jersey, monitoring the British flank. Compounding those challenges were the impending expiration of many soldiers' enlistments at year's end. Some troops were inclined to leave the army once their commissions expired, leading to desertions before their service was complete. So, the strings of defeats in New York, in New Jersey, the flight of the army and Congress to Philadelphia cast doubt on the prospects of victory and independence. So, Bjorn, I think that's a big thing here, too, is this, uh, you know, these uh, enlistments about to expire. This is a big, and that's a big chunk of Washington's army, right? Or almost all of it.
1: Yeah. So, Here's the situation. George Washington's looking at this. His soldiers have signed a one year enlistment. Now, towards the end of the American Revolution, they'll sign three year enlistments, So he's not really going to have to worry too much about his army just up and leaving Uh, this Continental Army. Although it is technically more professional than these militias, now militias are just organized units of men from localities that decide to grab their guns and and respond to an emergency, and they are not going to be reliable for General Washington at any real rate during the the entire war. Now, he'll potentially go off and and start a campaign, and then he'll have dudes from the countryside Mm -hmm. join him. Uh, That's what happened with Gates at the Battle of Saratoga. Horatio Gates is going to find himself battling against a guy named John Burgoyne. And Burgoyne doesn't quite realize how many American militiamen there are because he looks at Gates' army and then all of a sudden it's just enormous when these militia dudes show up. So Burgoyne can't handle it. That's going to be a reason why Saratoga becomes such a great, outstanding victory for America. But when you're talking about Washington's army... This is as professional as we can get, and their enlistments expire in a, in less than a month. So he's looking at this saying he's got dispirited soldiers. They've just lost all of New York. They've lost all of New Jersey. We are now at the seat of the American colonial government over here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and these dudes have absolutely no reason to re-up. They have no reason to re-enlist for another year because they have only known defeat for the last six months. Might as so, well go back to the
0: farm and feed your family, right? Well,
1: how are you supposed to, like, you're just going to go re-up and die? That's right. not what we want to do. We're fighting for a cause, and if the cause is lost, there's no reason to fight for the lost cause. Right. So Washington desperately needs a victory, and he needs it within days.
0: One thing that will help Washington, and kind of this glimmer of hope that we talked about earlier, was on December 19th, a pamphlet came out titled American Crisis, penned by Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense. The publication proclaimed, these are the times that try men's souls. Quickly, this reached General Washington's camp at Philadelphia. Uh, the stirring words of Payne's pamphlet resonated with the soldiers, instilling a renewed sense of purpose and resilience. Uh, Washington had ordered it to be read aloud to all of his troops, providing encouragement and fostering a greater tolerance for the difficult conditions they face, especially going into the winter. So there we have it. That's the military situation on the British and American side. Let's quickly talk economics and on the social situation, too. So um, economically, the American colonies were still growing. Uh, the demands of war strained their limited resources supplying the army with enough food weapons and other things they needed was a big challenge for Washington. Uh, The fragile economy, basically, like it wasn't built yet to feed an army or supply an army. So there's like, they just didn't have a lot of stuff left, especially after losing the forts in New Jersey.
1: Right. So the entire economy of, of the American colonies was based off of uh, resource production for Great Britain. So if Great Britain wants to build a desk, they buy American trees mm-hmm. and then because they have limited amounts of trees in England. That kind of a scenario. They're the resource producer. The British economy was the finished product. So the wool is made in the colonies, and the cotton is made in the colonies, and the tobacco is made in the colonies. It gets shipped over, it gets produced into a finished product, and it gets sold back to the colonies. So they do not have on a grand scale these weapon foundries. They don't have the ability to make cannons. They don't have the ability to make on a grand scale these massive warships that the British have. They can't make their own gunpowder, which means everything that they have, everything that they need for war has to come from someone else. That's why when the French finally joined the Americans, that is a huge glimmer of hope for the American colonies. Prior to that, they were there was no one outside of the american colonies who was going to be able to provide them with the necessary resources of war when you're talking about food, there was no
0: manufacturing on the western side of the atlantic so like yeah you're you're not going to get anything made
1: nothing nothing and so when you're talking about food you know the american colonies were able to produce enough food for themselves they were basically self-sufficient a lot of the farmers a lot of the areas uh, what they were trading with each other it was mostly sustaining themselves based off of what the colonies were able to produce. And then any luxury goods had to be sought through trade. So you got your food from your local market, you got your books or you got your specialty items from overseas. That's where it came from. Now it's important to understand like logistically speaking, uh, the British are going to be incapable of supplying themselves more than 20 miles away from a Harbor. So throughout the entirety of the American Revolution, you are going to see the British having their outposts on the coast, mm. and then they're never able to sustain themselves further than about twenty miles. This is why this is why John Burgoyne gets himself in such a tr- in such a problem scenario in Saratoga because he cuts himself off from his own supply lines, mm. and he is forced to surrender. Oh, interesting! Uh, it's, it's also interesting to note that it actually cost more money to transport goods over about 20 miles of roads than it would descend a, a ship across the Atlantic Ocean, because that's how bad the roads were. That's how long the journey was. That's how hard it is to Dang. supply yourself in the American colonies. Their economy is not set up for this. They're unable to sustain a war effort. But at the same time, remember, the British have to overcome these things as well. And it all costs money. Yeah. And eventually what's going to happen is that the British are going to look at this and say it is no longer financially worth it to keep the colonies. That's going to be a big reason why they are going to accept American independence. They lose two entire professional armies during the war, two major armies. They're paying mountains of cash to keep these guys in the field it eventually does not become worth it for the British to continue this campaign. And the Americans are going to win their independence, but that is many years down the road from this. The
0: other thing to talk about quickly too, is the social situation. So socially America is divided weird, like continually. This is like American history. Like we're just always divided. Uh, Some remained loyal to the British crown, uh, which made things uncertain. The battles of Trenton and Princeton were not just fights, but also contests for people's support and loyalty. Winning these battles could change people's minds and inspire them to support the American cause, especially after, you know, a half a year of losses in New York and New Jersey.
1: Right. And and the true numbers of how many loyalists or how many neutrals individuals there are, how many patriots, that's really unknown. Usually what you know, you you used to be taught that it was about a third, a third and a third. One third of the American colonies wanted to be independent. It, it probably One ebbed and flowed loyalists.
0: throughout the whole war. It,
1: it absolutely ebbed and flowed, but Based off of some some more studies that have been made, they say that about 50 percent of the American colonies and the colonists wanted to be independent. They were on the Patriot side, about 50 percent. And then that latter 50 percent was d- divided between the loyalists and those who just didn't want to be involved.
0: Yeah. At all. OK, well, that's the uh, the political, military, economic, social situation. Let's do a, a quick rundown of the key figures that are going to be in this battle Um so the first one we've already kind of mentioned his name, General George Washington. Uh, he's the commanding force behind the Continental Army and was a towering figure in American history. He's like you know our origin myth. Born in Virginia, he had a wealth of military experience from his service in the French and Indian Wars. Uh, Washington's determination to secure American independence drove him forward, even in the face of all the challenges that he. Had.
1: And just reiterating. He learned from his mistakes. That's a big thing. And his number one goal is to keep his army alive. He doesn't have to win battles. He just has to keep his army alive and keep costing the British more and more money chasing him down.
0: Other notable leaders on the American side for this are General Nathaniel Green and General John Sullivan. Uh, Green was a native of Rhode Island, uh, known for his strategic brilliance, and played a vital role in shaping American military tactics. And then Sullivan came from New Hampshire, uh, was a fierce advocate for American independence, and demonstrated his leadership in battle. On the British side, the first one we have is General William Howe, which we've already mentioned. Uh, he's the British commander, hailing from a prominent British military family. He had a reputation for tactical skill. Howe had already tasted victory against American rebels in battles like Bunker Hill and New York. However, his confidence and belief in British superiority would lead to him making critical misjudgments in battles to come
1: he's eventually going to be sent home Mm. and as a result of some of the mistakes that he's
0: next is general charles cornwallis another notable british officer he had earned his stripes in previous campaigns he played a significant role in coordinating british operations and maintaining control over key regions cornwallis would become entangled in the events unfolding in trenton and princeton leaving an indelible mark on the course of the battles Next is Colonel Johann Rahl, a Hessian officer commanded the garrison stationed in Trenton. Rahl, a veteran of European conflicts brought his renowned discipline and military expertise to bear in the defense of the strategic position he was in. Little did he know that his position would soon face an unexpected assault from Washington. You're in any comments on any of those commanders or did I miss anybody?
1: No, you know, we, like I said, this is a small limited battle that had humongous impact, uh, especially for the American side. Now, When the British suffered these defeats, you know, they weren't they weren't good defeats by any means. You know, a thousand Hessians being captured is never a good thing when you're paying for every one of these soldiers. But at the same time, the the actual strategic value of the victory was nothing. When you take into fact the morale and that we received the morale boost as a result of
0: these battles. Cool. Next, let's look at some of the tactics used by both sides and kind of their philosophies on military. So let's look at the Americans first. Uh, Like we said, led by Washington, Uh, the Americans relied heavily on their ability to utilize guerrilla warfare tactics. The Continental Army comprised of a diverse array of soldiers lacking traditional training and resources of their British counterparts. As a result, they adopted unconventional tactics, taking advantage of their intimate knowledge of the local terrain and leveraging surprise attacks to compensate for their numerical and logistical advantages. In the case of Trenton, Washington orchestrated a daring plan to cross the Delaware, under the cover of darkness. This move allowed his forces to catch the Hessian Garrison Station at Trenton off guard, resulting in the decisive victory of that battle. The Americans utilized close quarter combat and utilized their limited artillery to to great effect.
1: Now, it's important to remember, during this entire campaign, Washington is consistently looking for an opportunity to attack. So it's not like he is just retreating, retreating, mm-hmm. retreating, which is what it looks like, but he is consistently finding Uh, an opportunity, scouting for an opportunity to attack. And to prove my point, as Washington retreats across the Delaware River, he actually grabbed all the boats that he could possibly find and brought them to his side of the river. Now, you would look at it and say, well, maybe that's just to keep the British from crossing. No, there were plenty of fords that you could go or go around with bridges. This guy was looking for an opportunity to be able to bring his army back across that river in an expeditious manner in order to bring the fight to the enemy. He is on the lookout for for a way to attack the enemy, and he's going to find one, Mm. and it's going to come on Christmas Day. All
0: right, the British, commanded by General William Howe, had a more traditional approach to warfare, especially in the 1700s. Equipped with well-trained and disciplined troops, the British relied on their superior firepower and formal military tactics. Their soldiers were armed with muskets, bayonets, and cannon, which gave them a distinct advantage in open field battles, right? And that's what Howe was really looking for all the time. I was like, can I get a pitched battle to really demonstrate the superiority of my army?
1: And it's really interesting you talk about the the musket, right? The musket and the bayonet. Now, the American frontiermen. They didn't buy muskets, right? The American frontiersmen before the American Civil or the American Revolution, these guys had the Kentucky long rifle. (laughs) rifle. That's what they had. And the problem with a rifle is that the Kentucky long rifle didn't have a bayonet mount on it. Mm. And so early on in this war, they're going to have a problem with with this whole, you know, we don't have a bayonet. How do we fight in traditional warfare? And They're actually going to look for opportunities to purchase muskets. They're going to get some from France because um, they want to. They believe that they need to fight this battle and go toe-to-toe with the Redcoats in open ground. Washington is going to play some of those battles, but he's still going to look for opportunities to deviate slightly from that traditional european style of warfare and here is one example of his
0: um what would they use instead of bayonets for close quarters combat do they have knives or like short swords or something
1: well, so what you would do is, first of all, you're going to use your rifle at an extreme range to attempt to prevent your opponent yeah. from getting up on you. But the tactics of the day showed that you fired one or two volleys at your opponent and then you charged into them. And whoever had the highest morale and the more fierce war cry, I guess, the more was the pointy one, things Yeah, they had the, they kept the field with the American colonists. Generally speaking, if you had a rifle and not a bayonet, you had one or two options. The one option that I would potentially go for would be just turning your rifle around and using the butt of your rifle mm-hmm. as a club, because that would provide you with a further reach than sure. a long knife. You know, a side note in the Mexican-American war, the the first Mississippi rifles, they were an actual regiment created of rifles. And they ordered uh, that their soldiers had to arm themselves with a long weapon for close combat. So they Mm -hmm. were told that they could have whatever they wanted, whether it was a bowie knife or a sword or an artillery men had short swords. Uh, That's what the first Mississippi rifles had to have in the Mexican American war, because we were even in the 1840s still convinced that a musket with a bayonet was the best way to fight a battle. Mm -hmm. And it turns out rifles are actually better.
0: All right. So the British forces also had challenges of their own. One big advantage they had was their underestimation of the Americans resolve and their lack of reliable intelligence. This led to a failure to anticipate Washington's moves and resulted in critical lapses in their defenses. Furthermore, the harsh winter conditions added another layer of complexity to the battlefield. Freezing temperatures, icy terrain, and treacherous river crossings tested the endurance of both armies. The American troops, though ill-equipped and poorly supplied, demonstrated an ability to face that adversity where the British didn't necessarily want to do.
1: The British were the ones who were like, hey, let's just not fight. Yeah. It's winter.
0: It's wintertime. It's camp season. So it's also important to note here, we've kind of talked about it here too, was this battle wasn't just between the Americans and the British. There were Hessian mercenaries from Germany fighting alongside the British forces, which added a unique dynamic to the conflicts. The Hessians were renowned for their discipline and combat skills. Initially, they presented a formidable obstacle for the American forces. However, their defeat at Trenton demonstrated that even the best trained soldiers could become overcome through clever tactics and determination.
1: It's important to realize at this point in time that the king of England, King George, he actually had uh, part of his family heritage was from Hanover, Germany. So that that also kind of ties the, you know, the political ties between the Germans and the English. Now also remember at this point in time Germany's not its own country. It's a amalgamation of about 300 small independent semi-independent uh, city-state. They're the style. same way for the uh, last
0: series. Yeah,
1: yep, they're
0: they what are, are Germans independent. Doing?
1: Well, they're going to wait until <laughs> gonna wait. the Prussians yeah. they're going to yeah. wait until the Prussians consolidate everything in the 1870s. All
0: right, let's get into some battle planning here. So first, let's talk about the the US intelligence here. So among the intricate web of spies and intelligence operatives during the American Revolution, uh, side note, watch Turn to like understand where United States military intelligence comes from. It's a really good show. Uh, and General Washington used spies very effectively. One man stood out in this section of the battle, John Honeyman. He was stationed as a spy by Washington, and Honeyman had perfected the art of deception. Honeyman was a butcher and a bartender by trade and he had a pretty incredible background. He had fought alongside Major General James Wolfe at the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in Quebec back in 1759. He had credentials as a Tory, and that allowed him to seamlessly blend in with the British and Hessian forces occupying Trenton. Using his connections and trade with the enemy, Honeyman gathered valuable intelligence. His most audacious feat, though, was convincing the Hessians that the Continental Army was in a pitiful state of morale, leaving Trenton safe from any imminent attack. He played his role so convincingly that he arranged to be captured by the Continental Army, who had orders to bring him unharmed before General Washington. After being questioned by Washington, Honeyman found himself imprisoned in a hut, awaiting trial as a Tory. However, fate intervened. A small fire broke out nearby, providing the perfect opportunity for his daring escape from the hands of Washington.
1: (laughs) What a what a daring escape he made! Yeah. from the guy he was working for. <laughs> so uh, I love this because like it's,
0: it's like a it's a mix of human intelligence, right? Like just classic, like bartender in a bar, and he hears all the stories of of the soldiers in his in his tavern, uh, talking about uh, you know what's happening in Trenton, what's happening across the Delaware, but then also like the ability to do some like psychological warfare, deception operations to just tell them, yeah, the Americans are are in a bad way, and uh, things aren't looking good for them.
1: Well, my favorite is the fact that he's able to keep his cover intact by getting captured and then escaping.
0: Yeah. oh, So cool.
1: All right. So we're going to see these multiple directions um, play into the success. General John Cadwallader. Would lead a diversionary assault against the British garrison in Bordentown, New Jersey. It's going to effectively cut off reinforcements from the south. Meanwhile, you're going to see James, uh, General James Ewing, and his 700 militia. They're going to seize the Trenton Ferry, securing the bridge over the Asung Pink Creek, trapping the enemy forces within. Okay, so we got them. We have to make sure that the soldiers can't get out. We got to box them in. The main assault force is going to be comprising of about 2,400 men. They're going to cross the Delaware River approximately nine miles north of Trenton. They're going to split into two groups led by Generals Green and Sullivan, and they're going to launch a pre-dawn attack on the unsuspecting Hessians. Now, remember, you got to envelop your enemy in order to capture Mm -hmm. them all. You want to bag them all, right?
0: Otherwise, you attack from one direction, they got a place to go, right? We want to surround them so they can't go anywhere.
1: Absolutely. So Sullivan's forces are going to strike from the south. Green's troops would advance from the north. The success of this audacious operation is going to determine the course of the battle, potentially paving the way for f- further attacks on Princeton and New Brunswick. Okay, so here's the thing. If if one of these two individuals are not in position at the right time when the battle kicks off, then the the cat's out of the bag. But we're going to see a very well orchestrated battle here in a couple minutes. So Leading days up to the battle, the American advance parties are going to meticulously execute ambushes on enemy cavalry patrols. They're going to capture dispatch riders. They're going to ambush Hessian pickets. The, the Actually, the Hessian commander is going to realize the gravity of the situation. He's going to dispatch 100 infantrymen and an artillery detachment to deliver a letter to the British commander at Princeton. Okay. So they, here's the thing. We like to think that that what General Washington did was just this amazing, uh, completely hoodwinked to the enemy. There were very much uh, tells. There were signs that this was going to go down, but they just didn't pick up the... Story. Yeah. So we're going to... Yeah. So aware of the need for information on the Hessian movements and technology, General Washington's going to task General Ewing and his Pennsylvania man, militia with reconnaissance mission. However... The general, in a display of audacity, carried out three successful raids across the river, disrupting enemy outposts, setting fire to several of these houses. So we're, we're setting up. We need information, right, Brendan? What's the what's right. the most what's the most important thing in a battle other than having the soldiers and the equipment there to actually fight the battle?
0: Information. Always, always yeah. information. The, the ability to like have data to make decisions for a commander is the probably the most important thing, I think. Uh, at least coming from my foxhole, so yeah, well, I think, like, I think and you I
1: need the bullets first.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you need all that, but you but know. that's
1: coming from my logistics, there, yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I love reading about Washington because he does understand that, and he does such a great job of utilizing intelligence and reconnaissance to understand what is happening in his battle space, and it gives him a really big, marked advantage compared to other generals. Like, we talked about, like, when we talked about Antietam both of those generals sucked hard at reconnaissance and it like Lee had no idea what was happening with the Americans or with the union. And, uh, I already forgot his name, whatever it, McClellan. Yeah. M- McClellan also bad. Like he thought the, the Confederates were, you know, a hundred thousand strong, but yeah. Washington like knew deeply what his enemy, who his enemy was and what his enemy was doing.
1: Well, and that remembered his entire goal is to be close enough to the British to entice them to attack him, but far enough away for them not right. to be able to bag him. And so the idea that he knows exactly where they are is playing hugely into his ability to play that cat and mouse game across all of the New England area.
0: So the other thing that's interesting here too, is, you know, we're talking about um, mid December and it's getting cold in New Jersey, right? It's, it's cold out and the Delaware is getting pretty close to freezing, right? So Washington believed if the river froze, that general Howe might attack might attempt a Northern attack in Philadelphia before the winter actually set in. And so to counter this threat, um, Washington had put out uh, surveillance along all the possible river crossings uh, near the Continental Army encampment just to make sure that the British aren't going to move against him. So he's set up, he's doing his attacks, but he's also setting up his surveillance and his guard lines to prevent uh, the British from attacking him. So on December 20th, 1776, reinforcements began arriving in Washington's camp. General Sullivan and his 2,000 troops joined the ranks, having previously been under the command of General Charles Lee, who had been captured. Additionally, 800 troops from Fort Ticonderoga, led by General Horatio Gates, arrived to bolster the American forces. So we're we're getting set here for the Americans to kick off this, this attack. Before we do that, let's talk about what the Hessians do uh, leading up to the Delaware crossing. So on December 14th, 1776, the Hessians, a formidable force of about 1,500 men, arrived in Trenton to establish winter quarters. This town boasted about 100 houses and two main streets. It lacked walls or fortifications, uh, a common feature among American settlements at the time, which is uh, not a good for when you're in the defense.
1: Now, remember that, Brendan, 100 houses and two main streets. they are actually two streets that are in they're parallel with okay. each other. So it's actually in it's very small. If you were to go to Trenton today um, and the entirety of New Jersey is almost in an, it's almost all a city. And so when I'm driving in to try and find Trenton, you get there and there's this huge obelisk monument to the Battle of Trenton. And then there's two roads. And mm. you're like, okay, so the battle took place right here. And they're like, yeah, basically this. this. Oh, little the two of us are like happened, right there next to each other. Yeah, they're okay. they are right there. It oh, is, this is a very small battlefield mm. when where battlefields are concerned.
0: Right. A hundred houses is not that many houses either. That's like my little neighborhood.
1: Yeah, this is teeny. This is a teeny battle. Couple, a couple thousand men. Remember, 2,400 men are going to be Washington's main attack force. The Hessians have 1,500 men. So we're looking at like 4,000 guys in a small Two parallel Dang. road, uh, city, small town uh, that is going to play hugely in American morale and success going on.
0: General Carl von Donop, Rawls superior. So Colonel Rawls, we mentioned him earlier. Uh, Donop had marched south to Mount Holly to deal with resistance in New Jersey. Meanwhile, tensions simmered within the Hessian ranks. Donop, not exactly fond of Colonel Rawl, was reluctant to hand over command of Trenton to him. Colonel Rawl, a veteran with 36 years of battle experience, had requested reinforcements. Unfortunately, British Commander General James Grant, believing the American rebels to be inferior soldiers, denied Rawl's plea. Despite his experience, Rawl's leadership did not inspire much admiration among the Hessians in Trent. Some Hessian officers advised Rawl to fortify the town, suggesting the construction of a redoubt and fortifications along the river. So engineers drew up plans, but Rawl dismissed their recommendations. When urged again to fortify the town, Raw arrogantly declared, let them come. We will go at them with a bayonet. Sure
1: you won't. <laughs> Classic.
0: As Christmas approached, loyalists and U.S. deserters arrived in Trenton, reporting American preparations for an attack. Raw publicly dismissed these reports as nonsense, but privately, in letters to his superiors, he expressed concerns about an imminent assault. He wrote that Trenton was indefensible and requested British troops to establish a garrison nearby. His plea was denied. The Hessian officers, witnessing the disruption of their supply lines by the Americans, began to share Rawls' fears. Sleepless nights became the norm as they anxiously awaited the enemy's next move. On December 22nd, a spy reported to General Grant that Washington had called a council of war. Grant warned Rawl to be on your guard. That night, due to the severe weather, the Hessians chose not to send out any patrols. All right, Bjorn. So on the morning of December 25th, 1776, Washington issued orders to his army. Provisions for three days were prepared, and fresh flints were fitted into their muskets. Washington had concerns about intelligence, suggesting the British might attempt their own crossing once the Delaware froze over. Time was running out for the Continentals. As twilight approached, Washington's troops gathered for their evening parade, but this was no ordinary drill. Every soldier, including officers and musicians, received ammunition. The secret mission was revealed. Washington's men were about to embark on their perilous journey. They marched silently towards McConkey's Ferry, their designated crossing point. The soldiers moved in tight formations, eight abreast. However, delays hampered their progress, and most didn't reach the river until full darkness had set in. The weather deteriorated, transitioning from drizzle to relentless rain, sleet, and snow. The elements tested the American resolve. Now, Bjorn, I just want to pause here and just talk about the watercraft used in the river crossing, because I think this is important to know. So, like you said earlier, when Washington retrograded west of the Delaware into Pennsylvania. He took all these these little ferry boats and, and other small boats with him. Um, so he had assembled a whole bunch of vessels uh, and he had a, help with some local militias and from the Pennsylvania Navy. So do you have anything else to add here on on the watercraft?
1: Yeah. So uh, Captains Daniel Bray, Jacob Gerhardt, and Jacob Ten Ike oversaw the transportation of infantry, cavalry, and cannons, uh, ensuring a safe crossing. Okay. So we got to get 2,400 soldiers across this river. Now, it's not an impressive river, okay? So when you're thinking of like like a big river where you look at that, that it's not the Mississippi. And when you look at the picture, Washington crossing the Delaware, that is most assuredly not the Delaware River that is being crossed in that picture. I hate to break it to any listener who's disappointed. The Delaware River is not very large, 30, 40 yards across at most, Okay. The only thing is that it's winter, and you can't you can't swim across this, and you can't get a cannon across. You can't run, ride your horse across because it's too cold. Your ammunition will get wet, and you will die of hypothermia. Okay, so we have to get across the river. But please don't picture this as this impressive, uh, mighty Mississippi of a river. It is not impressive at all.
0: The painting is very impressive, though. It is a gorgeous painting. painting.
1: a gorgeous painting. That river is not the Delaware. I don't know what river George Washington is crossing in that battle or in that picture, but it is not the Delaware river. So it's
0: the Delaware of myth,
1: large ferry boats, spacious enough to accommodate coaches, horses, horses, and artillery are going to be deployed. Significant number of Durham boats designed for heavy loads uh, with high sides, shallow drafts are going to have to be pulled across. So you kind of see in the picture, it looks like a regular rowboat. But they're in the picture, you've got guys who actually have poles and they're going to be able to push the pole down into the mud of the river and then push themselves. I'm across. picturing
0: the ferry boats from the first season of Wheel of Time when they're trying to escape uh, from their initial home. Right. And try to get across the river uh, with their horses. You know, that's what I'm picturing.
1: Yeah. I, I like to picture Davy Crockett and okay. the River Pirates, <laughs> that old Disney, Walt Disney movie from many, many years ago. I watched it as a kid. That's what I think. But they use skilled watermen. They're going to play a crucial role. Experienced seamen, such as John Glover's Marblehead Regiment, along with seamen. That's
0: a great name for a regiment, too, by the way. The Marbleheads. That is so cool. Oh, yeah.
1: John Glover's (laughs) Marbleheads. That's awesome. They're going to use shipbuilders from Philadelphia. They're going to join forces, local ferry operators, knowledgeable boatmen like Kirby Francis Kane from Rhode Island. All these guys together. Uh, successfully navigate the treacherous waters. They're going to ferry his army across to their destination, set the stage for a very historic victory.
0: One thing that is interesting here, you know, I hear all the time from commanders that wet gap crossings are the most perilous mission that an army can take or can do. And I think this has been true throughout all of history, like so much rides on successful river crossings and, and, Washington did a little differently than how we would do today. Uh, You know, we'd set out a lot more people to seize objectives on the far side, you know, put out more reconnaissance. Washington kind of just seems like we're just going to get across the river and do it fast. And I think with his intelligence of there not really being any Hessian patrols or any enemy on the far side, he probably felt pretty safe in doing that. But typically we'd see a lot more effort going into, you know, ensuring security on both sides of the river, which didn't seem to happen here. It might have happened, it just didn't make it into the record. So, Bjorn, I think one thing you like to talk about is logistics. Oh, I
1: love the logistics of it. So let's talk about the logistics of the crossing. Um, the logistics was 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 covered by Henry Knox, Washington's chief of artillery. He was tasked with ferrying both the men and the horses, along with the 18 cannons across this river. He faces a monumental challenge. Descri- he himself describes the operation as Herculean with floating oh, ice. It's really- his OER bullet oh, there. Oh, yeah. That, what a great, what a yeah. great, uh, <laughs> is that an adjective? Herculean. Yeah, he's got... Gonna-
0: yeah. yeah, with, Nice support for With there, all the uh, floating General lines
1: posing <laughs> a grave danger to their mission. But despite the odds, Washington himself was at the forefront, accompanied by General Adam Stephen and the Virginia troops. They form a sentry line on the uh, New Jersey side, so they're going to establish that breachhead there, uh, guarding against unauthorized passage. Watchword for the night was victory or death, a stark reminder of the stakes that were at hand. Very poetic. Uh, So the majority of the Army is going to successfully navigate the frigid waters without incident. Uh, There were some unfortunate souls, like Delaware's Colonel John Haslett, who briefly fell into the river. Um, That'd be pretty cold, but nevertheless... Sir, don't go in the water. No, sir. Colonel, Colonel, Colonel. Colonel.
0: Anyway... Quiggle, your seat's just up sit. here.
1: <laughs> Sir, just sit. George might be standing, but you need to sit. Their resilience remains unbroken. Their spirit, their spirits were undeterred. And it's a good thing their spirits were undeterred because they had a nine-mile march ahead of them. Right? So early morning hours, December 26th, around 3 a.m., uh, the artillery completes the Perilous Crossing. By 4 a.m., the troops are ready to march. Their determination's great, but, however, uh, two other crossing attempts face their own challenges. General Ewing, remember... He's going to be hindered by treacherous weather and ice jams. Colonel Cadwallader had to recall his troops when transporting the artillery proved too difficult. Upon hearing of Washington's victory, Cadwallader's men rallied once more, only to retreat when they discovered that Washington had not stayed in New Jersey. So how embarrassing for you if you're like, hey, we got to get across. Oh, we can't get across. Oh, but Washington won. Yeah, let's get across. Oh, he retreated again. Oh, darn it. Let's go back home. (laughs) Man, I'd hate to have been part of Cadwallader's unit.
0: Yeah. All right. So you mentioned a nine mile march. So let's talk about that. So at 4 a.m., the army begins its march towards Trenton. Along the way, uh, several civilians joined as volunteers and led as guides because of their knowledge of the terrain. It's interesting how Washington and like General Knox were. Was he a general at the time? It doesn't really matter. Uh like how they were able to get all this like local help in this such short amount of time. Like how did they find these? Gu- I wonder how they found these guides. But so they had these guides that led them um, through the woods here. So they marched one and a half miles through winding roads into the wind. Then they turned south onto Bear Tavern Road. Uh, they soon reached and crossed Jacobs Creek, where with difficulty the Americans made it across. The two groups stayed together until they reached Birmingham, now West Trenton, where they split apart with Greens Forest heading east to approach Trenton by the Scotch and Pennington roads, and Sullivan heading southwest to approach via River Road. Soon after, they reached the house of Benjamin Moore, where the family offered food and drink to Washington. At this point, the first signs of daylight began to appear. Many of the troops did not have boots, so they were forced to wear rags around their feet. Some of the men's feet bled, turning the snow to a dark red. Two men died on the march. As they marched, Washington rode up and down the line, encouraging the men to continue. General Sullivan sent a courier to tell Washington that the weather was wetting his men's gunpowder. Washington replied, tell General Sullivan to use the bayonets. I am resolved to take Trenton. About two miles outside of... Yeah, that's a good line. About two miles outside of the town, the main columns reunited with the advance parties. They were startled by the sudden appearance of 50 armed men, but they were American, led by Adam Stephen. They had not known about the plan to attack Trenton and had attacked a Hessian outpost. Washington feared the Hessians would have been put on guard and shouted at Stephen, you, sir, you, sir, may have ruined all my plans, but having them put on their guard. Despite this, Washington ordered the advance continue to Trenton. In the event, Rawl thought the first raid was the attack, which Grant had warned him about, and that there would be no further action that day. He would be very wrong. So, Bjorn, for us to really understand the battles of Trenton and Princeton, we have to just talk about some of the key factors that led to this engagement again. So we know battles don't occur in isolation and they're a culmination of a complex web of circumstances and decisions that shape the course of all wars, but particularly the war we're talking about right now is the Revolutionary War. So, Bjorn, what are those factors that led to Trenton and Princeton?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Number one most crucial factor that led to the battle was this dire state of the American cause. Remember, they had... They had seen great success the first portion of the war, and then the, the British show up with a large army, large navy, and then they see a series of defeat, defeat, retreat, retreat. The Continental Army is going to be in a, in a critical position. Uh, morales low, confidence in the fight for independence is waning. Battles of Trenton and Princeton present a unique opportunity for George Washington to rally his troops, turning the tide of the war and at least convincing his men that the cause is not lost and that they can re-up for another year to continue fighting For independence. Uh, Another one that plays a significant role is the strategic importance of the region. Okay, so Trenton situated on the Delaware River. It had some strategic value. Controlling this area would provide significant advantage in terms of supply lines, access to key regions. The British recognized this importance. They'd stationed the, the Hessian mercenaries in Trenton to maintain their grip on the area. They probably shouldn't have done that. You know, uh, Colonel Rawls' unit was far removed from any other British outposts. They weren't able to provide any assistance in the amount of time that was necessary. So they maybe found themselves too far away. Um, But it was an important uh, position that they thought that they should maintain. So this battle... Uh, the two battles of Trenton and Princeton are going to be critical turning points in the fight for control of the region, right? So as soon as Trenton and Princeton are American victories, well then Philadelphia is not so endangered uh, as it was before. And finally, here the audacity and the ingenuity that General George Washington is going to show—we can't under—we uh, can't overstate that enough. Uh, his decision to launch the surprise attack. Uh, In on Christmas of 1776, following these deceptive mover maneuvers uh, that will then play into the Battle of Trenton or Princeton, Trenton and Princeton, right? He's he's hoodwinking them to get to Trenton hoodwinking him again in Princeton. It's going to showcase the strategic brilliance. He's ready. He's hungry for the offensive. He's hungry for an attack. And when he sees an opening, he's right, going to punch. Thanks, man. That's where we're going to end this well. week. The Continental Army has successfully crossed the Delaware River and has The, march march new life into the, the German Hessians are pulling up against the bitter cold and celebrating against Christmas. seemingly insurmountable Next
0: episode, eyes. we will focus on the battles themselves. We'll delve into the details of the assault on the Hessian garrison at Trenton and the intense fighting at Princeton. Get ready to experience all the actions of the battle, the strategic decisions, and some of the unexpected turns that that unfolded on this historic battlefield. MMG out.